RPN is not responsible for the views, actions, statements, or opinions of its guests, advertisers, or even its viewers. The information contained in this program is not to be confused with medical or legal advice. An appearance on this platform is not necessarily an endorsement. But as always, we encourage you to do your own research. Enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to Red Pill 78. As always, my name is Zach Payne, the Corruption Detector, and this is another edition of Red Pill News for Friday Night Livestream. Joining me in the studio tonight for the third time for another in-depth conversation, my good friend, I like to call him a deep-dive researcher, the one and only... Duppy. They can't hear you yet. They can't hear you yet, but just a second. (laughs) He's muted for you guys, but don't worry. In 59 seconds, we're going to be getting this show started. I need you, in the meantime, to hit the like button. Help us out by sharing the show. Thank you very much. If you're out there uh, keeping the chat warm, if you are leaving comments below the show, that really does help because the chat doesn't stick around after we end the show. But thank you very much to the Patriots over there on the Foxhole at Pill.net, everybody over there on Getter, and of course, our family on Rumble. I sincerely appreciate you guys being here and hanging out with us. Also, if you don't mind, I share the show out there on uh, Twitter and Truth and Telegram, etc. So if you guys feel like sharing that out, that would be awesome, too. So yeah, the first two times Duffy was here, we did a major two-part, like six-hour show, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, two, three-hour shows talking about the black nobility. Tonight, we're talking about the East India Company. So sit back, relax, and grab your popcorn. We're going to be right back after this. My friends, gold is on the rise. It just soared past $2,000 an ounce. And the wars in Israel and the Ukraine, plus the rate cuts that are on the table, well, all of these things are working together to help fuel the meteoric rise of this beautiful, precious metal. And the top banks, Deutsche Bank, UBS, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, all of them are forecasting sizable rate cuts coming up in the election year. And you've got the heads of the top financial firms pointing out the similarities to what we see in America now in the 1970s. Take a look back at 1979. At that time, we had the Iran hostage crisis. There was war in the Middle East and major U.S. cities were in disarray and stagflation. At that time, gold went from $158 an ounce in 1974 to $850 an ounce in 1980. Meanwhile, our national debt is skyrocketing even higher. There's a direct correlation between the national debt and the price of gold. Back in 2020, the U.S. debt was at $23 trillion and gold was $1,500 an ounce. Well, now in 2023, it's $33 trillion and gold is over $2,000 an ounce. Now, President Trump, he warned us the U.S. dollar no longer being the world standard will be our greatest defeat in 200 years. So you can call the proud Americans of the Patriot Gold Group today before it's too late. 
Remember to mention me, Zach Payne, and Red Pill News. And when you do, you will always get best-in-class service from Patriots Protecting Patriots. Patriot Gold Group has the no-fee-for-life IRA, where your IRA or 401k can be in physical gold and silver, and you might be eligible for the no-fee-for-life IRA. It's available on qualifying rollovers, and to find out if you do qualify, give them a call today at 888-857-6092 and get your free investor guide today. Once again, Patriot Gold Group is a consumer affairs top-rated gold IRA dealer for seven years in a row. Call them today at 888-857-6092. And when you support my sponsors, you support this channel. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join me in welcoming our guest, the one and only, returning for a third time, Duppy. Duppy, how are you, buddy? I'm wonderful. How are you, Zach? I am super, super good. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, our first, I said conversations, but you, <laughs> you checked me in the commercial break. More like a lecture, and that's fine. It's totally fine. You've got a lot of great information, and there really is no way to get it out there in an effective manner if I keep interjecting. So I have to be honest. I, I am happy to sit back and uh, and allow you to pour the details out for myself and the audience. It's It's honestly pretty cool because it feels like I just get to sit here listening to somebody else's show, to be honest with you. Yeah, give you a nice break. That's right. And my, my throat this, needs it. I'll tell you what, after this week. <clears throat> well, this is this has always been a really fun show to do, so I'm looking forward to this. Good and I stuff. Hope it, I hope it makes sense to people. This is um, a continuation of the other two shows in that, you know, this whole focus on the families mm-hmm. or family in the case of what I've been doing uh, bleeds into this. And hopefully it gives people a, a a sense of what the deep state might really be. Um, so, and, do, you know, do we need to do we need to pull up that family tree again to kind of give people a refresher no, so they know I, where I'm we're gonna, starting? I'm going to say I'm going to give a little brief overview for about five minutes before we dive into this, just right. to kind of set the stage. So, if you're ready, I can. You have the floor. Start sharing. Okay. All right. Can you see the screen? We certainly can. Okay. So the story behind this, if you guys remember, this was a few months back. We did those other shows. I was not terribly thrilled with the whole Pazer theory and the decode of uh, P in the Q drop. So I kind of went a little bit different route. And it ended up blossoming into something absolutely massive that I'm still working on. Um, but to make long story short, what I did was I looked at some symbolism that was in the Q drops that hadn't really been uh, decoded very much. And that kind of led me to a particular family. Now, you know, okay, you can just pick a family out of a hat. So I've gone through a lot of effort to see um, just how powerful this family might be. Um, one of the one of the problems I had with the original Pazer theory was that it's just like how can how can somebody be in the top position in the world hierarchy if their sort of economic history maybe only goes back two hundred years or something like that? Knowing that there are families, particularly in Europe, at least whose fortunes go back much, much further than that. And so I ended up 
with this family, they're the Cavendish family in England, um, primarily to start with just because of the weird, weird nature of their coat of arms, which you're looking at right now. You know, if you look at coat of arms for all these families in Europe, they're very complicated and they're usually very colorful and they kind of describe their family's inbreeding history with little pieces of different coats of arms kind of shoved together to say, look, this is who we are. But this, this one was different. And what really got my attention was a, the coat of arms here has a black background, which is not colorful. So it was very different than other coats of arms. And if you remember the cue drop from that weird Rothschild party where the chicks were in the deer head, um, People thought that might be Y symbolism and Y was something in the Q drops that people hadn't really figured out. But they did, they were suspecting that the deer head might be representing, representative of the Y. Y, as it turns out, is the, is a letter in the Phoenician alphabet. So it goes way, way back. And oddly enough, Phoenician is also known as Proto-Hebrew. So, here we have perhaps on this coat of arms, why, why, why? Well, why is the sixth letter of the Phoenician alphabet? So we essentially have six, six, six. Okay, that's pretty creepy. Also on top, they have a snake and we all kind of know what the snake represents in mythology and religion. So that's kind of creepy too. They're um Latin motto Cavendo Tutus actually means um safety through discretion. So how many times have we heard about these people hiding in the shadows? So it kind of fits that narrative too. So okay, so I've got this family with some weird symbolism. Is that all there is? Am I just gonna point a finger at them and say, these are the guys you gotta watch out for? So, spent a lot of time digging into their bloodline, and it is about as um, high-powered as anybody's. They actually go back through William the Conqueror, then to Charlemagne, then to the Merovingian kings. So, essentially, they're a royal family, but they're not kings, but they're, you know, cousins of the kings, so the same bloodline. And... After the Merovingians, I think, and this is kind of, kind of a mind blower, I think there's evidence to show that, um, the Merovingian kings were actually descended from Constantine of all people. Now that flies in the face of the Da Vinci Code story where they give you the whole Mary Magdalene flowers and unicorns thing. Um, but I think these, these people literally probably descend from Constantine's family, Roman nobility. And that's probably true of all of the European royalty because they're descended from Charlemagne, who is directly in line. But these guys, how did they get to be so powerful? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I alluded to some of it in the earlier shows, but there wasn't enough time to go in, in depth. So this show is to go in depth on um how they became so powerful. And that is through the East India Company. Dun dun dun. 
Yeah. <laughs> so how's that? How's that for a, a that's, segue? That's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let me bring the rest of it up. Okay. So, so this show is actually titled entitled Fascism and the East India Company because there's sort of a philosophical take on what fascism really is and how that plays into what the East India became or vice versa. Um, so basically this first slide, I've just got a kind of a stylized coat of arms of the East India Company that somebody found for me. I don't remember who it was, but I liked it because it had the East India Company symbol on the top. This is not the official coat of arms of the East India Company. It's kind of stylized. Um, I'll show the real one in a minute. But I just kind of like this one because this, this, <laughs> this logo of the East India Company, when I kind of realized what it was, it, it freaked me out a little bit because it was very similar to some of the symbology that I talked about going back to Egypt in the, in the other shows. Mm. Might not get to that part tonight though. It's at the, near the end. All right. So we're going to talk about fascism first. Now I think we've all been schooled to think of fascism in a certain way, you know, Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and it's basically right wing nationalism off the, off the charts or something like that. That's not how Benito Mussolini described it. Uh, Mussolini ought to know something about fascism because he was um, one of the first fascists in Europe. He predated Hitler uh, as far as being in power and wielding fascist power. But he described it as, quote, fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism because it's a merger of state and corporate power. Pretty simple explanation, and think of that in terms of the modern world and oh, yes. public-private <clears throat> partnerships and all that stuff. So I kind of look at, you know, Nazi Germany, at least, and what we've been fed as kind of a whitewash – well, not a whitewashing, but a kind of a smearing of what it really is so that we don't understand it mm -hmm. uh, as it really should be understood. The, the nationalism thing is just kind of a, a byproduct of a certain uh, implementation of fascism. But yep. bottom line is fascism, by this definition, is all around us right now mm -hmm. and has been for a long time. You know, what's interesting is like at the time, you know, Hitler was definitely considered a fascist. And there was the rise of the uh, British fascism as well. There there was uh, a, a man who was a lord. I can't remember his Mostly. name. Mostly. Mosley, yes, Ed, Edward Mosley or whatever his name was. Anyways, Mosley, he had the uh, the British fascist party, and it was very reminiscent of the you know the kind of the themes, the colors, the rhetoric of of Hitler, and uh, and they they all knew you know Hitler was a fascist, but Mussolini was a fascist, Mosley was a fascist. Yeah, <laughs> but but they had to I, I cover actually, that up because they've still got fascism today. They just don't want you to know it. That's right, and and hopefully with um, as I get a little deeper into this. I don't know if we'll get it tonight, but the next show, um, we'll see that fascism has been with us for a long, long time, much earlier than Mosley, Hitler, and Mussolini. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and by the way, I, I recently ran into Mosley on one of the family trees I was working on. So he's, he's related to all these people too. Oh, that is very interesting. Have, but, have you ever seen, um, uh, oh gosh, there was a show on Netflix, uh, that was about, uh, these gypsy, uh, uh, like there were gypsy thugs in, uh, in, in Britain in like the 1920s. Anyways, Mosley like played a part in the final season of it. Somebody out there yeah, will remember. I'm not surprised. <clears throat> yeah, These yeah. People are all over the place, and, and when you actually connect them family-wise, the the amount of connections are kind of shocking, actually. Okay, so Peaky we're Blinders. Start... Sorry, Milo got it. Peaky Blinders. Thank you, Milo. That's a great show. So I'm going to start off here with a little kind of a thought experiment. Because I'm actually going to talk about Karl Marx here and see where he came from. I think we've seen people talk about Karl Marx's relationships with funders and things that, but here it is explicitly laid out. This is the family tree that Karl Marx came from. And basically he is, uh, was a product of some very wealthy Jewish merchants in Amsterdam, which, you know, in the 1600s, um, 1500s and 1600s was pretty much the trading capital of Europe. Um, they were sort of the next reincarnation of Venice for maybe a hundred, 150 years or something like that. Well, wasn't so, there, wasn't there a Dutch East India company as well? Yeah. I'm going to no. talk about okay. them a little bit later too. Okay. Um, so anyway, he was, he comes from the family of a guy named Isaac Solomon Cohen. And if you remember, Cohen is the last name of the high priests mm-hmm. in Judaism. And if you go down a couple, uh, generations, remember, these guys are all in Amsterdam. And just, I guess I should explain how, how these trees are organized. I'll have, um, the person's name who's in a direct line. And then who they married and when they lived and where they were born and when they died. And sometimes that helps piece this stuff together, getting people in the right places when you have breaks in family trees. This helps you figure it out. So anyway, we get to this guy, Barrett Cohen. He was a very powerful merchant in Amsterdam in the very early 1700s. And he had at least two sons. The older one, Solomon David Barrett Cohen, stayed in Amsterdam, and the younger brother, Levi Barrett Cohen, somewhere in the middle of his life, he moved to London, and that would be the city of London, and he became a leading financier there. Um, this was right around the same time that the Rothschilds were getting powerful in um, Frankfurt. This guy, I think, went to London before the Rothschilds did. So he was kind of a little bit of a table setter in that way. Um, I'm going to continue down this this side here really quickly um, to show you that he had, let's see, two daughters and a son that are of note that I, they were worth putting in the tree. 
The oldest daughter married Nathan Meyer Rothschild. Mm. So <laughs> he brought her, uh, Nathan Meyer Rothschild. Um, yeah, she was, I think she was born in London, but I'm not sure. So he must have married her once he got there. Um, Judith Barrett Cohen married another guy named Sir Moses Montefiore, who was a, essentially one of the earliest Jewish uh, peerage members in in England. He was a baronet, and he was a banker, philanthropist, sheriff of London, and a major Zionist, of course. Um, and then the youngest or younger son, Isaac Cohen, his daughter Juliana Cohen married another Rothschild. And unfortunately, I had to cut the slide off mm. because it was just <clears throat> kind of hard to get it on one page, but. So, you know, the point is this branch of the Barrett Cohen line heavily married into the most powerful, uh, banking families in London by the time of, you know, 1800-ish. Mm-hmm. So on the other side of this line, the older son, Solomon David Barrett Cohen, he married a woman named Sarah Brandeis. And every time I look at this, I keep thinking of Louis Brandeis, who was, you know, a very much lauded Supreme Court justice in the United States and Brandeis University is named after him. I was going to, I was going to ask if that was the case. <laughs> yeah. I, unfortunately, I haven't been able to connect this Sarah Brandeis with him, but I wouldn't be surprised <clears throat> if, if that was a, a real link. So then we get to their daughter, Nanette Solomon's Cohen married a guy named Isaac Pressburg. They had at least three kids. Um, the oldest one, Hen, or the oldest, older daughter, Henriette Pressburg, married Herschel, or uh, sometimes his name is pronounced Heinrich Marx in Germany. That, he was a successful lawyer and the son of a very prominent rabbi in Trier. And, of course, their son, was Karl Marx. I don't need to talk about all that he's responsible for. I think everybody's pretty familiar with that. But just keep in mind, his role relative to his cousins that I'm going to show you in a minute. Uh, there was a middle son, David Pressburg, who interestingly enough, and this is something I still want to chase down, the geneal- 